glad you've chosen to take a little stroll with us on the road to Shalom. This journey we're on is all about understanding what it is, where it went, and how it can be recovered. You know, Shalom's an ancient Hebrew concept. It's kind of a tapestry where everything fits together and is working just the way it's supposed to be. Things between you and yourself, you and others, others and each other, you and nature, you and God, nature in itself. You know, Shalom is elusive, but it's also attainable. It's even sustainable. The bad news is it seems that there's also a part of us that runs from Shalom. And when we do that, beloved, we don't just turn away. We turn in to ourselves. Hi, I'm Fran Schock, and I'm the host of this channel. I'm really glad you're listening in today. In the last couple shows, we explored what the loss of Shalom looked like when it was caused by our codependent relationships with our mobile devices. We listened as modern researchers and prophets all voiced the same concern. They said we're moving away from who we ought to be as people. You know, it's kind of funny. We all know who or what Alexa and Siri are, but we really don't know the names of our own neighbors. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be between us as people. Shalom is missing. I know it. You know what? And I think you know it too. But what can one person do? I mean, what what can you do to restore Shalom? I mean, where do you start? Well, for starters, you're going to need to unlearn some untruths. I mean, for example, let me ask you, do you think individualism is a good thing? I mean, it's certainly an American thing, but is it a good thing? Or how about, what do you think is the fastest and most effective way to make social change? Crowdsourcing or face-to-face? Or which is better, few friends or lots of friends? Few words or lots of words? What's better, being noticed or paying attention? I mean, these are good questions. Let's go find some answers. We're going back into that room full of college students one last time. Here we go. Friday night we had the word from the scholars. We're going to have the word from scripture, reviewing it from last night. And one of the first things that we saw last night, I hope you got this, is that we are hardwired, we are designed for intimacy with the God whose likeness we share. We're designed for that. We're hardwired for it. When I am in right relationship with God, when I'm, when shalom is restored, when peace is restored between me and the God whose image I bear, I fulfill my purpose. And one of the most beautiful passages of scripture that deals with this, kind of in the bushes, you gotta shake the bushes to get this truth to drop out of it, is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, where it says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who exercises justice and kindness and righteousness in earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're going to boast, he says, don't boast about what you know, what you have, and what you can do. Boast about the fact that you know me. And beloved, the word know there is the Hebrew word yada. It's the word for the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And in our sexually jaded Western culture, that seems hinky to us. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was a word for intimacy. And God says, if you want to boast, boast about this, that you and I are intimate. Why? I made you for this. I made you for this. That's part of what it means to bear His likeness. We also learned last night that we are also 
designed for face-to-face relationships with people whose planet we share. Just as much as you were designed for a personal, face-to-face, spiritually relationship with Yahweh and with Yeshua and with the Holy Spirit, with God, God also designed you for face-to-face relationships with the people whose planet we share. But we learned something also last night that in Adam, we are drawn away from God and away from people towards ourselves. Our natural trajectory is away from God. And I wished I could tell you that that will change. You will fight this all the days of your life. Paul says this. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so there's this battle. There's the what I call the Adamic residue. There's a part of me that hates God and loves sin. Same is true of you. You know this. And it's not a condemning thing, it's a liberating thing. It helps make sense of why some of the thoughts go through your mind that do. It's a battle. And what God does, there's a huge theological word for this called sanctification, but the street version of it is, God's in the process of making you less like Adam and more like Jesus. Less like Adam and more like Jesus. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory from the, to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that's the work of God, all right? And the last thing that we looked at is that we need to look back to the ancient in order to know how to live forward in the new. All right, and I told you before that, you know, what, what we are oftentimes is best determined by really realizing what we're not. And one of the things we said is that we're not a topic. We're not a topic. Last night, we looked at this idea that we're not a gadget. And this morning, and I'm going to step into your space a little bit this morning, I have to tell you this one. You're not the point. You're not the point. I'm not the point. No one in this room is the point. God is the point. And God's kingdom is the point. All right, so we're going to spend some time talking about this idea of what's our point if we're not the point. You know, and the kind of the the new normal out there, the, the new normal right now is phrases that show up like self-enhancement, self-esteem, self-verification, self-image, self-concept. We've got books on managing brand you or me 2.0, or making a name for yourself. There's a whole industry on personal branding that's gotten in bed with social media marketing. And so there's this concept that has just gone viral because it was a key value in the first place. And that's a word. I want you to hear this because we're going to talk about two different words that sound alike, but they're very, very different. It's the word individualism. Individualism. And it's a popular word. It's something that you were brought up with. It's probably one of the key nurturing characteristics of the parents of millennials is this idea that you are an individual. What is that true? Well, kind of. Because individualism produces some negative things. 
It produces a sense of autonomy. Autonomy, what does that mean? Well, it comes from two Greek words. It's like Gus Portakalis at my big fat Greek wedding. You seen that movie? Yeah, he says, give me a word. Any word. And I show you that the meaning of that word, it's Greek. All right. So autonomy comes from autos and namas, self-law. And we become, individualism makes us become a law unto ourselves. It's what I value. It's what I decide. It's my goals, my dreams, the things I want to do. Pursue it. Achieve it. And it develops a sense of self-reliance that you've really got to rely on yourself. I stand here before you, beloved, as an old guy telling you that is absolutely untrue. And we're going to look at why that's untrue in a minute. But individualism tends to promote and produce self-reliance and autonomy. Second thing is it it leads to what I would call personalism. What is that? It's just everything is about me. My feelings get hurt. My vision gets crushed. No one's, people stand in the way. And isolationism. It's kind of me against them. And that's developing a great deal in our culture right now. Both nationally and globally. There's a whole lot of we, they's and, and us and them's going on. And that's what individualism produces. Third thing, and I have to tell you this, it's a key American value. We take pride in being rugged individualists. And it tends to produce people that think and operate in terms of individual rights and freedoms. At the end of the 19th century, there was a French historian, basically, that came over here. He wasn't a historian, but he ended up becoming one, named Alexis de Tocqueville. And he wrote a book called Democracy in America. And he said something very profound in that book. He said that democracy left to itself will turn everyone in on themselves. They will forget their past and have no concern for the future. And he said the only thing that keeps that from happening is a thing he called the habits of the heart. And he said the habits of the heart are the custodianship of the churches in America. They are the ones that keep people from becoming self-absorbed and demanding their own rights and their own privileges above that of the rest of society. That's individualism. There's another thing, sounds like it, called individuation. And individuation is radically different. It has to do with developing a clear sense of identity, not in contrast to the rest of the world or the rest of the culture or the rest of the people around me. That's individualism. But in comparison, in comparison, it's not how I'm separate and different, it's how I'm distinct and similar. And so I get this sense of identity in the midst of community. It's a very, very different and very powerful, powerful thing. This leads to engagement with others as well as involvement. People become important. Other people become important. And some of the most meaningful movements, some of the most meaningful things, you guys are doing it today by taking some of your own substance, investing it in a ministry in Southeast Asia. You're free to do that when you have a clear sense of who you are. But that's a fruit of individuation, not individualism. Individuation is a core biblical virtue. It's not a value. It's a virtue. It's when you and I really, truly understand who we are in Christ and who we are before God. And it leads to kinds of people 
that see themselves, get this, they see themselves as subjects in God's kingdom. All right, And this may be the wrong time in history to sound unpatriotic, but I have a king. I'm not first and foremost a citizen in a free democratic country. I am a subject in a kingdom. And you know, in 2 Samuel, I think it's 1521, there's a guy named Ittai the Gittite. Doesn't get a lot of ink. But he has a dialogue with King David. And King David is getting driven out of town by his son Absalom. And Ittai wants to join him. A Gittite was summoned from the city of Gath, which meant he was a Philistine. David says, you need to, you don't, you've only been here a couple days. You need to get out of here. This, this isn't your fight. And Ittai says this. He says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also shall your servant be. Beloved, that's fealty to the king. And you're free to do that when you really understand who you are in the context of community rather than how distinct you are from everyone else and how independent you are and how entitled you are, okay? And so we're going to step into something here this morning. I'm going to take back a word that's been hijacked by the culture right now, the word binary. It started in the world of computers, and we're in the world of technology. Binary code is just basically everything gets reduced down to zeros and ones, including the flash drive on your phone, everything that's on it. And I want to talk to you this morning about the power of zero and the power of ones. And there's a thing that I call the zero principle. And it has a tremendous impact on our thinking if we get this right. The word zero is a weird word, and it's also a weird number. It's not, it's not indigenous to our own culture. The zero came from Arabia. And its, its roots are in Arabic and Hindu culture. And it comes from a word that means empty. The word zero means empty. And the cool thing about this, I want you to get this, because it's more than cute. It's transformative if you get it. Zero has no value of its own. Zero has no value of its own, but what? It changes the value of everything it gets close to. A zero has no value of its own, but it changes the value of everything it gets close to. You put a zero after one, and it's gone up tenfold. You put two zeros after a one, and it goes up a hundredfold. You put a zero before a one, and it goes down tenfold. So zero's an amazing number. It's an amazing, amazing number. But get this. Being a zero is not being a nothing. Being a zero is being a something to someone other than myself. Being a zero is being a something to someone other than myself. And you know what? Modern culture despises the zero principle. Has no place for the zero principle. It's about me. It's about me. It's not about you. But beloved, the zero principle is at the heart of authentic discipleship. It's at the heart of authentic discipleship. It was John the baptizer's core value. John the baptizer made a very profound and brief statement in John 3.30. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. The zero principle was at the centerpiece of Paul's portrait of a disciple. It's in the book of Philippians, and he states it, Paul states it in verses 3 and 4 
of Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or, or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So that's the principle stated. Then he illustrates it in two places in the book of Philippians in that same chapter. He illustrates it in Yeshua, in the life of Yeshua. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant in being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he illustrates it again in a statement about a young man named Timothy. He says, I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. They all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Paul takes everyone else and puts them in this circle and he puts Timothy and himself in this circle. He says, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. They all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Paul says, me and Timothy seek the interests of Jesus Christ. And what are the interests of Jesus Christ? It's people. There are no U-Hauls behind a hearse. You and I can only take one thing with us out of this planet, and it's people. It's the only thing that matters to God, ultimately. Ultimately. So some questions for zeros, if we're going to be zeros. Some questions. What's more important to me? What's more important to you? That, that, others know about you? Or what you know about others? What's more important to you? That, others know about you? Or what you know about others. There's an old dead guy. Dead guys are good to read. You need to read some dead guys. There's this dead guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he made a statement, many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking when they should be listening. I'll modernize it. These Christians are texting when they should be listening. Another question for us is zeros. How much space, how much space do I occupy in my own life? How much space do I occupy in my own life? Another dead guy, I mean really dead. He's deader than Bonhoeffer. Uh, G.K. Chesterton made a statement, how much larger your life would be if you occupied less space in it? And you know, as a person that's taught for so many years, I found that people who have a little bitty world, little bitty world, two things happen. They either get arrogant or they become bored. They get arrogant because they've mastered their little bitty world 
and their authorities on everything because their world is so small. Or they become bored because their world is so small and they've done everything in it. And I'm telling you, God, God is impossible to get bored with if you get it right. And so is his kingdom if you get it right. Okay, that's the power of zero. We talked about binary, zeros and ones. Let's talk about the power of one. The power of one. The Bible says that having a single friend is a gift. A single friend is a gift. Proverbs 18.24, a man of many friends will come to ruin. But there is a friend, a friend, who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I want to challenge the modern notion that your friends are the ones who hit you back the fastest. I want to challenge that. Your friends, beloved, are the ones who stay with you the longest. The friends are the ones that walk in when the rest of the world walks out. They're not the ones that respond to every post, that respond to every text, that respond, but they're there. Paul had a friend named Luke. The end of his life, when he's about to have his head cut off, he said, everyone has deserted me. Luke alone is with me. So the scripture says having a single real friend is a gift. In our culture where words have become cheap, scripture says a single word is preferable to many. Isaiah 50 verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him that is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me and gives me the ear of those who are taught. And that's a verse about Yeshua. It is. The Bible also says that our greatest need is to have one person to walk with us. Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10, it says two are better than one for they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend will lift him up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to lift him up. There's two sides to that coin. One side is this. You need to have someone to walk walk one with you. All right. You also need to have the vision of walking one with someone else. That's both in that verse. It's not just you're on the receiving end when you fall down. You're on the picking up end when your friend falls down. So we both, we need both someone to walk one with us and we need to walk one with someone else. Okay. Now the biblical model of discipleship will always be face to face and life to life. Always. It's God's method from the beginning. And life-to-life discipleship is the fastest and most efficient way to reach the world. Let's say that you and I both come to faith at the same time in college. I'm your age, we're in college. We come to faith our freshman year. That night we're having a quiet time in the dorm or in the apartment, and the angel Michael comes to us, or Gabriel comes to us, and he offers this tremendous ministry opportunity. There's two options. And one option is that you get to lead a thousand people to Jesus every single day of your life for as long as you live. Thousand people a day, every day of your life for as long as you live. The other option is you can lead one person to Jesus a year 
every year of your life for as long as you live, but you have to invest your entire life in that person. Thousand a day, one a year. I grabbed the first option. You're stuck with the second one. And so at the end of our freshman year, I've led 365,000 people to Jesus. There's two of you, you and your original little disciple. The end of our sophomore year, we're both about 20 years old. I've led 730,000 people to Jesus. There's, uh, what, how many of you then? Four. Yeah, you're cooking. All right. By the time we end our junior year, I've got over a million people in the kingdom. A million ninety-five to be exact. And for you, there's eight now. I've led a million people to Jesus in my first three years of college. I mean, I'm on Christian talk shows. They're making bobbleheads and frisbees about me. I'm writing books like How to Lead Your Pet to Christ. Um, You know, it's just amazing. Christian world has just turned me into a celebrity. And there's eight of you. All right, we get to the end of our senior year when we're both about 22 or so. And I've reached the equivalent of the city of Philadelphia, about a million and a half people. There's 16 of you. We graduate, we get married, we have kids, we get careers going. And about the time our first children are our age in college, when we first came to faith, you and I discover that our ministries are basically about the same. Literally, same number by the time we get to be about 41 or so. About 8 million people. Well, then we keep going in the next decade, if you do the math on this, about the time both of us are cresting our 50th birthday, I've reached the equivalent of the city of Cairo, Egypt. I've reached 8,760,000 people. You've reached the world. You've reached the world. That's the power of one versus the power of numbers. And I'm telling you this because you guys are coming of age at a time when there's an illusion that the fastest way to reach the world and the most effective way to reach the world on any subject is through technology. Think what we could do. Think what we could do. And God's method has always been and always will be face-to-face, life-to-life. It is honestly the fastest. You can do the math on this on your own. It's mind-blowing. The second method is geometric. One. One is a powerful number. And I tell you this because this method is always going to be countercultural. It's going to seem counterintuitive. It's going to seem like it's not the fastest way. All right? But I think there's some questions for us as ones. Some questions. Do you and I believe, and you've got to answer this for yourself, do you believe that the power of one is greater than the power of the crowd and the cloud? And I can't make you be convinced of that. But if you get this, it will make a huge difference in how you approach the rest of your years. So a question I have to ask you, you all need someone to walk one with you. 
Who's that going to be? Who's that going to be? And you also need to walk one with someone else. You can do this. Who's it going to be? Think of this. Is it realistic? Is it realistic for each one in this room to ask God for one person each year you're in college and to put just put the number one on your mirror? You get up in the morning and you see that one and you say, Lord, who is he? Who is she? Where is he? Where is she? Bring him in. Bring her in. You can walk one with one and also help them learn how to walk one with someone else. That's why you're here. You know, 48 years ago, a drug dealer on my college campus found Jesus, ruined my life because I had no place to get my drugs at that point. <laughs> I mean, what was God thinking for crying out loud? So, so at 3 o'clock in the morning, I go into this guy's room and he sits down. He's been a Christian like three months and my life is falling apart. My brother just got blown up in Vietnam and my, all my career plans had changed. I was suicidal and he walks me through this. You know, He says, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? I said, I believe he was the son of God. He died for the sins of the world, rose from the dead and he's coming again. He said, you really believe that? I said, yeah. He says, so does the devil. He said, how does your belief differ from his? I mean, I fell down on the bed. I said, I don't know. So he shared the fact that Jesus had died the death I deserve and gave me the righteousness that I longed for. And so I went out 3 o'clock in the morning, screamed. It was the most unorthodox prayer you would... All the lights went on in the girls' dorms. I was standing on a platform screaming at the top of my lungs at God. You know, and it looks like it worked. Um, I did. I said, God, if you're out there, I want you to be my Savior. You know, I thought little shooting star, little smoke from the bushes or something, you know. <laughs> Nothing. So I walked off the platform. I thought, this is a bunch of something, you know. And so I'm walking on... And God says, you didn't mean that. You didn't mean that. So I walked back on. I did it again. Nothing. Walked off, and I was going off the third time. I came back, and, 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 and I yelled it and screamed it as loud as I could. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit came into my life. I mean, I had a physical experience. You know, in the band I was in, we were doing progressive folk at the time, and there's an guy named James Taylor that had a song called Fire and Rain. And I used to sing that song. And there's a stanza in there about, won't you look down upon me, Jesus? Won't you help me make a stand? And I sang that song all the way back to the dorm. Kicked the dorm room open, jumped into Walter's room, and I said, I did it, I did it, I did it! What do I do now? And he said, uh, I don't know. Um, here, read this. Gave me a Bible. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't got to be slick in this stuff. You just got to be there where God is. And our campus, I am not joking, our campus was like the book of Acts. There were people coming to Jesus every single day for three years. Went from zero to a couple hundred people. It was, it was the most exciting time to live in my life, in my life. 
but it was because one person took an interest in one other person. And you don't know Walter. You don't know who he is. But someday, if you've gotten anything out of my teaching this weekend, you need to thank him because he is the one who led me to faith. And the guy that led him to faith was an Iowa farmer who had a haircut like a toothbrush. I mean, we all look like mops. We wore our jeans till they fell off or walked off. And this guy didn't have any time for hippies. So he went to all the jocks and the ag students and all this sort of stuff for two years, sharing the gospel, nothing. Prayed that God would bring a revival, drew a circle in a church floor, knelt down and prayed all night long, and a revival broke out among all the druggies. You know, it was a different time. He had to sit us down and tell us not to bring weed to our summer training program. So, you know, we were just a little rough at the edges when we got started. But there's pastors, there's missionaries in Africa, college professors, all kinds of campus workers came out of this. All right, so the power of one. God is looking for virtual disciples. Is he? No, he's not. There is no such thing as virtual discipleship. God is not looking for virtual disciples. He's looking for tangible disciples, not virtual ones. The incarnation was flesh and blood, and God's gospel moves forward through people in flesh and blood. You can't digitize grace. There is no app for discipleship. There isn't. Life to life, face to face, is the biblical model for discipleship and for friendship. That's what the scripture teaches us. And it matches you, your design as a person. It matches your design as a person and it fulfills your mission as a disciple. Life on life, face to face, flesh and blood to flesh and blood. Two final questions. First one is, which is it going to be? Is it going to be the new normal? Self-actualization, self-promotion, self-verification, individualism? Is it going to be the me 2.0 self-branding? Are we going to follow the cultural model? That's the new normal. There's a thing I call the ancient radical. The ancient radical. And Jesus says this in Mark 8.35, For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. He also said in the Gospel of John, he says, Truly I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it does die to itself, it bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. That's the first question. What's it going to be for you? Is it going to be the new normal or the ancient radical? I'm not talking about old school, man. God doesn't like old school. And I don't either. God loves ancient school. And he wants us to look to the ancient paths and find where the good way is and walk in it. And we'll find rest for our souls. And we'll bring shalom to the cities where we've been sent into exile. Second question, who's going to be greater? Who's going to increase? Is it going to be you is it going to be that people know more and more about you? Or is it that people are going to be drawn to know Yeshua? Because Yeshua said this, anyone that has seen me has seen the Father. Look up here, look up here. 
Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. You, you are the current body of Christ on earth. And God wants you to be able to say, anyone that has seen me has seen Yeshua and has seen the Father. He must become greater. I must become less. Man, I love the idea that being a zero is being something to someone besides myself. Man, I love that. And isn't it crazy that a single face-to-face relationship can change the world? I mean, that means that you, beloved, you are significant. You can make a difference. In our era of social media marketing and amazing stories like the Arab Spring, we've kind of been dazed into believing that the best and the fastest way to make change is through large numbers of highly networked people. But you know something? My generation thought that too. You know, we believed we could change the world and we didn't even have smartphones. Our prophets were all musicians. They told us that we were coming to strawberry fields forever because all you need is love. And we had our own Arab Spring that validated our power and our solidarity. It was called Woodstock. But you know what? We were wrong. The Beatles proved that all you need is love wasn't true when they bitterly broke up in 1970 and Paul McCartney started singing Live and Let Die. You know, there was a lot of noise back then, a lot of bodies, but it all fell apart. Because it was easy for us all to shout, hell no, we won't go when it came to the war. But it was much harder for each of us to say yes and then go do something constructive. You know, cat videos can go viral. Restoring Shalom can't. God's model for Shalomic restoration and social change was set forever by him taking on skin when Jesus showed up in the neighborhood. Beloved, you are God's method now. You are the best and fastest way to make change. It's you committed to one other person in need. Matter of fact, you're listening to my voice today because one person helped restore shalom between me and God a half a century ago. Ask God to open your eyes and see who He wants you to reach out to. Trust me, trust me, they're already in your life. You just don't know it. Okay, next episode we're going to look at a very real and uncomfortable truth, and it's this. Each one of us is either an enemy or an advocate of shalom simply by how we use our smartphones in public. Oh yeah, don't miss this episode. Matter of fact, bring a few friends. Mm